Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we feature the music of The Killers, made in 1964. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Welcome, everybody, to a very special episode of The Baton. It's not necessarily special because of the film which will be featured in this episode, but because I am releasing this episode on John Williams' 87th birthday. Happy birthday, maestro! The music of John Williams had impacted my life for decades, and from the time I was watching Star Wars on TV when I was very young every Christmas with my brother, to getting that feeling in the pit of my stomach when the dinosaurs appeared in Jurassic Park. And... I didn't get that feeling because of the awe of seeing dinosaurs look so lifelike, but rather because of the grand music that was playing while they graced the screen. And this podcast is definitely an extension of that admiration of John Williams. And I hope that you will listen to a few minutes of your favorite piece of John Williams, as I will, after you listen to this episode. So, with that, let's dive into our next film in the series. It's The Killers from 1964, which is probably the first film of decent quality in the John Williams canon. And what's more interesting is that this film wasn't intended to be shown in movie theaters. It's based on a short story by Ernest Hemingway that was first made into a movie in 1946, starring Burt Lancaster in his film debut. The 1964 film is directed by Don Siegel, who was in line to direct the 1946 version, but Robert Siodmak took that job. Siegel was able to step in for the 1964 version and got Lee Marvin to star as one of the killers of the title. Lee Marvin was already a big celebrity, having starred in the TV crime drama M-Squad, and you will remember that John Williams wrote the music for an episode of that show in 1958. Lee Marvin would become even more famous the year after The Killers, winning the Academy Award for Actor in a Leading Role in Cat Baloo. The film also stars Angie Dickinson, as well as Ronald Reagan playing the villain for the first and last time on film. It would also mark Reagan's final film as he was on his way into a life in politics the year after the film was released. Norman Fell has a couple of scenes in the film, and you might know him best as Mr. Roper on the classic TV series Three's Company. And John Cassavetes plays Johnny North, starting a lucrative career as an actor that would go to see him in such films as Rosemary's Baby, and earn an Oscar nomination for Supporting Actor for 1967's The Dirty Dozen. He would get a second career as a film director and screenwriter, earning an Oscar nomination for directing wife Gina Rowlands in A Woman Under the Influence, and for writing 1975's Faces. As I say in every episode, there are spoilers ahead as we talk about the film. Lee Marvin stars as Charlie, a seasoned hitman who is assigned to kill a teacher at a school for the blind. The man who Charlie has come to kill, named Johnny North, doesn't try to escape his fate, which is the first time Charlie has seen that happen. Charlie gets curious and looks into the man's life. Turns out that Johnny was a former race car driver, and we find out about his life in a series of long flashbacks that give us an idea why Johnny North seemed to expect to be killed. It all has to do with the robbery of a mail truck that contained a million dollars, and in the ensuing getaway, Johnny tried to run off with the money instead of splitting it with the other robbers. The film has a couple of interesting behind-the-scenes factoids. 
John F. Kennedy was shot during the filming of the movie in November 1963, and Angie Dickinson, who was famously known as one of JFK's mistresses, was so distraught by it she had to take some time away from filming to grieve, and production of the movie was halted for a couple of weeks. The film was set to be released on American television, but the censors deemed it too violent, and the film found its way into movie theaters on July 7, 1964. Looking at the film now, it doesn't seem too violent, but of course, 40 years ago, it would have been. The scene in which Charlie and his partner killed Johnny North at the beginning of the film shows hardly any blood, despite Johnny being shot at least 20 times. And only three more people die in the film, though the last death is kind of bloody. Perhaps the thing that turned TV censors off was the infamous slap that Ronald Reagan gives Andy Dickinson in the film. Reagan has said in interviews that he regretted having to film that scene, but as a villain, it was pretty much what his character would have done. John Williams appeared to be having a fun time scoring this movie. The tone of the film sets up well for jazz influences in the music, and that's kind of what we get. I fell in love with the opening title music when I first heard it and was surprised to hear the return of those bongos that we hadn't heard in a John Williams score in a while. But this music was not written by John Williams. It was composed by his friend Henry Mancini for the Orson Welles film A Touch of Evil, which was released way back in 1958. A Touch of Evil and The Killers were owned by Universal Studios, so it was their right to put whatever music owned by the studio into another one of their releases. But the choice to put Mancini's music in the movie is weird to me since the film had a composer attached to it. You would only do something like this if the composer had been fired or the composer had written music that was not good and there was no time for a rewrite. In any case, John Williams takes some inspiration from this opening title music and sprinkles it throughout his score, including those bongos. Henry Mancini's involvement with the film extends to the song Too Little Time with lyrics by Don Ray. And this is another instance of Universal Pictures borrowing music from another one of their films. Too Little Time was originally the love theme for the film The Glenn Miller Story, which was also released in 1958. Nancy Wilson, a popular jazz singer at the time, sings the song in the film. Too little time We have too little The moments fly when I'm with you. After the scene in which the song is introduced, John Williams put together a nice instrumental arrangement into a romantic scene.
The romance in this movie takes place in flashback between Johnny North and Sheila, a woman who seems to have an attraction to race car drivers, or at least Johnny in particular. With Johnny being a race car driver and Sheila basically saying she's not a prim and proper girl, the two go on a date at a go-kart track with some interesting music to go along with it. This is great string writing by John Williams. The melody is fun and bouncy, and there are those bongos again. As much as I applaud the use of a different type of percussion here, I'm just not a fan of the bongos as presented through traditional film score, since the bongos are really associated with Caribbean music. To me, it would be similar to using the bagpipes in the score for Schindler's List, so think about that. We don't get scenes with a significant amount of music for 40 minutes, and it's when Johnny takes part in the robbery with Ronald Reagan. Pay attention to the notes played by plucking the strings and how it's transferred to muted trombones. Once the mail truck arrives with the million dollars, the theme from earlier returns. But once the chase actually begins, the brass section and flute take over.
Back in the present day, Charlie has found Sheila, and he's not happy that she's lying to him. As is the way for a man whose job involves violence, he threatens her by almost throwing her out of a seventh floor window. John Williams manages to keep the music from getting overbearing until Charlie is dangling Sheila out of the window by her legs. It's a lovely staccato theme that moves from the woodwind to brass as the scene intensifies. I've discussed at length how great John Williams is at moving melodies through different sections of the orchestra, and this is another fine example. On woodwinds, the theme is not too threatening, but when it's handed over to the brass section, we understand that Charlie really means business. Every composer would love to get their hands on a scene like this, but not many would understand that you don't crank up the intensity to 11 right at the beginning and try to hold it through the scene. That's too much for the audience to sustain emotionally. Williams was able to recognize that here to great effect. After that threatening gesture, Sheila cooperates and tells Charlie what happened after Johnny stole the million dollars. Johnny is confronted by Ronald Reagan's character, Jack Browning, who shoots Johnny. Johnny runs off into the woods, accompanied by this music. If I had played this music for you out of context, meaning you didn't know it came from this movie, you would have probably guessed that it came from some animated film or comedy. The flutes are a large reason why this music feels so out of place. Don't you agree? I mean, the scene is quite tense. Johnny is shot and might die if Jack finds him in the woods. But when you have flutes playing in a high octave, it makes us feel like laughing or at least smiling. Think about any scene in Home Alone, which was also scored by John Williams. Wouldn't this music have felt more at home there? I certainly think so. So, the finale doesn't really have any music to go with it. Charlie figures out the truth about Jack Browning, who did find the million dollars and was trying to run off with it. Charlie is shot outside the hotel when he leaves to confront Jack. Before he dies, he manages to shoot both Jack and Sheila. The final shot shows Charlie collapsing on the ground as dollar bills blow in the wind. The final musical cue repeats some of the music in the opening titles. Kind of a slap in the face to John Williams, if you ask me. So I think the killers allow John Williams the opportunity to show that he can handle a film of such dramatic weight while not deviating too far from the jazz influences which were still a major part of his musical voice. 
With jazz being such a prominent musical style in the 1960s, it's not a surprise that film composers were leaning heavily on jazz in their scores. Though audiences were going mad for Mary Poppins and My Fair Lady the same year The Killers was in movie theaters, they were also flocking to to buy the soundtrack to The Pink Panther, which was composed by, yes, Henry Mancini, and sold moderately well as an album. Mancini asked his very good friend John Williams for a little help on the piano, and Williams was happy to oblige. In addition to playing for Mancini on the Pink Panther score and writing the score to The Killers, John Williams was super busy in 1963 and 1964. He was asked to work on a season of the popular TV show Gilligan's Island in 63 and 64, and reports indicate that Williams scored as many 20 episodes, which would probably mean nearly 200 minutes of music for that particular season. Another TV project that involved Williams at the same time was the anthology series Craft Suspense Theater, in which Williams wrote the opening theme music and contributed to most episodes in the 63-64 season. Here's the opening music that played on each episode of Craft Suspense Theater. Not too many jazz influences in the theme for Craft Suspense Theater, but it was a big year for playing jazz for John Williams. His love of jazz and his deft hand at using it in his film scores most likely caught the eye of the director of his next film, who would turn out to be one of the most famous jazz singers in American history. But jazz music wasn't on the menu as John Williams would write music for his first war film, and we'll examine that film in our next episode. Thanks as always for listening to The Baton. I hope you'll contribute to the conversation by commenting on the show's website, sending me an email at jeffswim@aol.com, or at jeffswim on Twitter. And I might just read your comments on a future episode. Until then, the baton is down.